Good morning, Westridge. You may be saying to yourself, where do you get all these ideas to have a church that is never as usual? Are you saying that to yourself? Once again, I connect with my audience. Uh, What does never church as usual mean? Does it mean that you're just trying to be hip? Does it mean you're just trying to be all current? I got news for you. We don't have to try to be hip. The reality is, never church as usual is not something that's a fad. It's not something that we're doing just to be cool. It's actually following some very ancient paths, some very ancient models found in the Bible. And I hope that's what we do today. There's some striking similarities between the ancient city of Antioch and the modern day city of Chicago. Both were cosmopolitan in nature. Antioch was the third largest city in the empire. Chicago, as you know, is the third largest city in America. Both were noted sports centers. Antioch had rabid sports fans, especially when it came to chariot races. And I don't have to tell you that Chicago, in just the last decade, we've got the Stanley Cup champ Blackhawks. Starting back up again. And we got a World Series title for the White Sox. And sports bars around the city fill up whenever a hometown team plays. I've even heard a rumor there is a baseball team on the north side of Chicago. (laughs) Haven't checked it out yet. Both cities were extremely corrupt. Five miles outside the city of Antioch, prostitutes paraded as priestesses in a pagan temple. Say that ten times real fast. Occultism, witchcraft, astrology, all common in ancient Antioch. And you know that corrupt Chicago politics and crime are perhaps unrivaled in America. That's why today I'm announcing my run for mayor of the city of Chicago. Thank you very much. Drive in, vote, vote early, vote often. And yet, in the middle of this ancient metropolis of Antioch, there arose a church that stands as a model for those of us promising never church as usual. Let's take a peek at it from the book of Acts. Those who had been scattered by the persecution triggered by Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. But they were still only speaking and dealing with their fellow Jews. And then some of the men from Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to Antioch, watch this, started speaking to Greeks, giving them the message of the Master Jesus. God was pleased with what they were doing and put His stamp of approval on it. Quite a number of Greeks believed and turned to the Master. When the church in Jerusalem got wind of this, they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check on things. And as soon as he arrived, he saw that God was behind and in it all. 
And he threw himself in with them, got behind them, urging them to stay with, the, uh, with it the rest of their life. He was a good man that way, enthusiastic and confident in the Holy Spirit's ways. The community grew large and strong in the Master. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And he found him and brought him back to Antioch. And they were there a whole year meeting with the church and teaching a lot of people. It was in Antioch that the disciples were, for the first time, called Christians. If we want anything close to this kind of model community in a modern metropolis like Chicagoland, we'll have to join Antioch in putting first things first. Here's the first area. They were the first multiracial, multicultural church. Underline that phrase, started speaking to Greeks. Do you realize what that meant? Do you realize how monumental that one little teeny phrase that gets hidden in much of the book of Acts was? Those who were doing the speaking were Jews. And speaking to Greeks means they spoke to people unlike them. But there's a lot packed into that little statement. There's centuries of contempt from the Jews toward Greeks and vice versa that rivaled any racial strife we know today. To speak to Greeks meant they got outside their comfort zones. They developed relationship with relationships with people who were sometimes repulsive to them. It meant they understood that Christ died not only for the forgiveness of their sins, but He died to break down the barriers that divide us and keep us apart to create real community. If we gather only for church with those who look like us, smell like us, dress like us, sound like us, we may have an affinity group, but not necessarily a church. We may have cultural conformity, but not necessarily Christian unity. These guys in Antioch, they understood that never church as usual was not just for one culture, one tradition, one race, that it was for all people, all cultures, and within that, there's room for differences. I get mildly amused sometimes when I hear people discussing the multicultural reality in our country today as if it were something new for the church. In the first century world of the book of Acts, the church was overwhelmingly Jewish, the early church, overwhelmingly Jewish, racially, culturally, religiously, and all that came with that. And most of these early Jewish Christians, they'd been taught for centuries, it was their culture, to avoid other races that they referred to collectively as simply Gentiles. And the result was a deep-rooted suspicion and distrust of other people. And so in this multicultural city, this ancient metropolis of Antioch, we've got an entire ethnic racial group that had not been reached, had not even been spoken to. And so these unnamed heroes here in the book of Acts, they took a risk, they started a relationship with people they'd been taught to hate. So I'm just wondering, in your world and mine, who are the Greeks we need to start talking to? Who are the Greeks in your world you need to start talking to? Maybe they're from different world religions. 
probably most of us in this room today know people from another world religion. Wouldn't it be great if Christians were known for believing Jesus rather than belittling other people's faith? Maybe they're people from different racial groups, different socioeconomic levels, different educational levels, different family circumstances, different generational differences. I've been in small groups for decades, different places in the country, and by far the most meaningful one was in downtown Chicago in the mid-90s where we started a church. And the country of origin of those in this particular small group that met in our apartment included India, he was also a Hindu, Australia, Philippines, Puerto Rico, African Americans, men, women, college students, those without a college degree, married and single. And you know why it was the most meaningful to me? Because it was the most diverse, by far, group I've ever been a part of. And because of that, I learned the most from people not like me. The eminent missiologist Leslie Newbigin says we need to seek out diversity in our life in order to see Jesus better and to be reminded that He's so much bigger than my cultural captivity. I was reminded as I was studying this passage this week of a church that, that Risa and I visited some time ago. And uh, Risa asked the pastor's wife about a small group that she led. And the pastor's wife told Risa, well, that group's for younger women. That's what she said. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times when we need to meet with peer groups and when that's the best. I am saying this. God is so much bigger than my limited cultural perspective of Him and I need others not like me to help me see the God who is so much bigger. That increases my faith. Here's another area where they were putting first things first. They were first for taking risks in developing leadership. That one little phrase, again, seemingly insignificant, but packed with so much meaning. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, the text says. Here's Barnabas, the man with the biggest heart in the church, searching diligently for Saul, the man with the most disgraceful past in the church, asking him to join him to become a teaching pastor in this first church of the first in Antioch. Now, some of you will remember that Barnabas, earlier in the book of Acts... He was the man who sold a piece of property, gave the proceeds to meet the needs of the church at that time, which was in a bad economy. His name literally means son of encouragement. And here's Saul, later to become known as the Apostle Paul. But when he was Saul, he started out as a killer of Christians. He formed his own right-wing militia, and he was doing what he thought God wanted him to do. He was a terrorist. He thought God wanted him to exterminate... Christ followers. And you probably know that story too earlier in the book of Acts. Saul had a life-changing experience, but look at it from the church's perspective in Antioch. Who knows if he's sincere? Who knows if he can be trusted? Now, do we really want his kind in leadership? Barnabas did. Barnabas took the risk. Barnabas saw grace 
in a disgraceful background. And long before there was the great Apostle Paul, a man who figures prominently in any history of the world, there was Barnabas, far less known, but without whom there may never have been an Apostle Paul. And what a team they made. Barnabas, sensitive, encouraging, compassionate. And here's Saul, razor-sharp intellect, logical, bursting with energy. He played to win. Now, I'm guessing today some of you are a Barnabas. You're not going to be up front. You're not going to be out on the edge. But you see potential in people. You have the gift of encouragement. You have the ability to judge when someone's just gone too far and when they just need a second chance. The word to look for in this passage implies difficult in effort. It wasn't easy to go search for Saul. And so Barnabas risked searching for Saul. I think leadership is always risky. It's almost always easier to do it by yourself or not do it at all. And so if you're a Barnabas this morning, let me encourage you. Take a chance. Recruit an apprentice. Risk mentoring someone with great potential who may just be waiting for an encouraging word from you to get back in the game. Now, some of you may be Saul this morning. You've done some shady things in your past. You know who you are. Can you imagine Barnabas reading Saul's resume to the church in Antioch when he invited him to become a teaching pastor there? Yeah, he's, he's a little bit unproven. Uh, and yes, there was that little, let's call it an issue in his past. Killing Christians. But but I want you to know, that's all behind him now. (laughs) There's always a risk in leadership. (laughs) And some churches make it so hard to get involved that Jesus himself will be put on a waiting list. The faith I read about in the Bible, it's a faith of second chances. And we want to be the kind of community that takes risks on people with disgraceful pasts and instead see grace in their future. So don't let your past stop you from leading in the future. Saul didn't. Here's the final area where they put first things first. This one gets noticed a lot. It's the first place the disciples were called Christians. The question is, why was it here that this group of people picked up the title Christian, which simply means those belonging to Christ? I think it was because here in Antioch, in this ancient cosmopolitan city, so much like modern day Chicago, that this group of people actually started doing what Jesus would do. They spoke to Greeks. They got outside their own little clique. They got outside their own comfort zone. They searched For Saul, they took a risk in leadership development. And in the last paragraph of this chapter, they sought out those in need by sharing their financial resources with the less fortunate. Now, for some, it was not out of admiration that they called people in this church Christian, but out of contempt. It was kind of derisive. It was kind of mocking them. These people are just acting like that kooky prophet from Jerusalem, Jesus. They're they're nothing more than Christ followers. Look at them. 
acting like Jesus. That's okay. I think there's also something instructive here. It matters more what other people call us than what we call ourselves. We can scream all day long that we're Christians. We can put bumper stickers on every square inch of our car. We can pipe Christian music into every space we occupy. We can wear WWJD bracelets on both wrists and around our neck in neon orange. But none of it matters unless people see us acting like Jesus. Because they so closely identified with the heart of Christ, people in Antioch said, these people, they're, they're just Christians. And in the end, what's important is what other people call yourself. Robert Cole says, the question is whether one lives the way Jesus would have us live. It's a matter of being, not declaration. One of the surest ways to see Jesus is to look at the way we interact with each other, the way we live in community, the way we show extravagant love for each other. This community, the church, it's a place where we're loyal to each other. It's a place where we're vulnerable with each other. It's a place where we can depend on each other. The early church clearly saw that their commitment to Christ was expressed in their commitment to each other. And that's not easy to do today. One social historian describes the conditions in America today as a social solvent. A social solvent. That is to say, the forces at work in our culture today, they're so intense that they tend to dissolve patterns of relationship rather than hold us together. And you you don't have to look too far to see the fragmented family lives, the isolation, the long commutes, being mesmerized in front of video games or TV or internet. Is it any surprise that we've got difficulty making relational commitments that lead to community? And yet we see a spiritual hunger without a commitment to community. This first church of the first, first, this church in Antioch, they knew no such thing. Perhaps for whatever the reason, for you, maybe it's abuse, maybe it's betrayal, maybe it's cynicism. You've developed a relational shell. A shell that wants connection to God without a connection to community. And for you, it'd be a big risk to become a part of a small group or to host a small group. And if that's you today, all I got to say is, we understand. On the other hand, a life of detachment and isolation, you got to know, that's a risk too. That's a risk too. Now, I'm no Barnabas, but I'd like to encourage you to take one more chance. And maybe that one more chance for you is signing up to be in a small group or to host one, to take a step of involvement. It's a risk, but it's worth the risk. Reporter uh, asked the great Gandhi one time, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? Gandhi replied, 
I think it would be a great idea. Now you may be thinking, living in a community that lives like Jesus, <laughs> that'd be a great idea. I'd like to be a part of a community that puts first things first, a place that's multicultural, multiracial, not just another affinity group where there's room for differences, so I can see the God who's so much bigger than my own cultural perspective. I'd like to be a part of a community where you get second chances, and they're given freely with no bitter aftertaste. A place that takes risks in leadership development. A place that when others looked on at the way we treated one another, they'd say, they're doing, they're doing what that Jesus would do. They're Christ followers. That's never church as usual. Living like Jesus, in community, take a chance. It's a great idea. Thank you.